Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. All right, I'm excited for this week's guest. It is Clark Datchler, who was the lead singer of Johnny Hates Jazz. Do you remember them? They had a few hits in other parts of the world, namely the UK, but in the States, they were really only and best known for this classic right here, Shattered Dreams. This reached number two in 1987. What's really interesting though, and you may not have known this, is that at the height of the popularity from this song and this album and this tour, Clark left the band. He was basically really unhappy. And he had what I, I guess I would call a sort of spiritual awakening. Like a lot of us do, at this stage in his life, he's seeing the world through the popularity of Johnny Hates Jazz, and he's just, he's heavy with questions as to why do we treat each other the way we do? And why do we treat the earth the way we do? Why do we act this way? Why do we allow these things to happen? And there was a heaviness or a burden that was happening from wanting to know answers to those questions. And he's basically never stopped searching. He gives a lot of his own philosophies and opinions on how, how to solve some of these issues in this conversation. He even apologizes for it, which he doesn't have to. Because if you're going to look into who Clark Datchler is as an artist, you've got to get into the core and, and ask some of those questions and find out what he's all about. I think he's a really interesting guy. He's basically been on a solo path ever since. He put out uh, four or five albums in the last 30 years. It's kind of confusing. We talk about that in here. Uh, a couple years ago, Johnny Hates Jazz, he reformed them and put out a second album called Magnetized, which is really, really good. But just as that starts to pick up steam, he gets cancer. And so he's got to deal with that too. Anyway, there's a lot to unpack here. He's a really interesting, thoughtful guy. And I love talking about these deep thoughts and these different philosophies and, and answers that, and solutions that he's come up with over his life. He's a wise man. He called me from his home in London. I, I normally do a whole bunch of research before I go in for, to one of these interviews. I purposefully didn't do a whole ton with you because I don't actually know the story as to why you left Johnny Hates Jazz at the height of the fame. And I didn't want yeah. to find out and have it ruined for me. You know, it's kind of okay. the difference between sort of buying an album online and finding it in a thrift store or something like that. You know, that thing you've always wanted yeah. to know. So yeah. you've got, I mean, let's right out of the gate, the question I'm sure you've been asked a million times, why at the height did you leave? Well, I will give a different answer now to the one that I probably gave when I was, however old I was, I guess I was 24, 25 when I left. Because, of course, I look back and see it very differently now than mm -hmm. how I saw it at the time. You know, at the time, it was a huge drama. It was a huge, mm -hmm. huge decision to make in my life. And this many years later, yeah, I kind of look back and think, well, it, it would have been nice to have the older Clark around to advise the younger Clark what would be wise and what would not be wise. But, you know, I mean, it, it, to be honest, it was a bit, I could say many things around that. But the main thing was that I, you know, certainly I was changing as an individual. I was becoming much more aware of different challenges that we face as humans around the world. And that happened in part because I was promoting all over the world with Johnny Hates Jazz. And so mm -hmm. I 
I'd go to different places and see appalling environmental destruction that mm-hmm. was similar in nature and certainly in roots to that which I was aware of in you know my own home country at that time, uh, Britain. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to put a lot of energy into that musically, so that that was one thing. But I think you know, looking back, John, I didn't really want to be in a band. Really? I I yeah. I had been in bands, you know, for for many years, but I had also been a solo artist, and that had always been my focus and my desire. Even though, you know, Johnny Hates Jazz became very suddenly very successful, I really could not see the wood for the trees. And so my desire to work on my own and really call the shots and make my own decisions, and that is where the environmental aspect of things came in because I really wanted to be able to write very freely about that. It made me make a decision that in hindsight was probably premature. Had I stayed with the band longer, I think that it would have been a different outcome for everyone. I'm not saying it would have been necessarily, you know, nonstop success. I, don't, yeah, I mean, sure. we were, that I, of course, left, you know, at the end of the 80s and, and mm-hmm. as the 1980s to the 1990s happened, you know, the music scene changed radically and it was actually sure, very hard for people who, yeah, very hard for people who had arisen in the 80s to be accepted in the 90s. So, yeah. Mm. So it's who knows. It's, you know, Mm. who knows what would have happened. But I think that, you know, the long and short of it is that, is that I, my desire to go, to go it alone was greater than my understanding of just how unusual it was to be in that situation with the bands doing that well internationally. Yeah. So that's my honest answer to you. Okay. That's what I wondered. Uh, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the success because I think that's anyone from the outside looking in would be like, well, aren't aren't people in bands or becoming musicians so they can become successful and have their music heard? You had been in the business singing for six or seven years by that point and are reaching worldwide success with this huge song. You got what most people are dreaming of, but are you driving yeah. around? You know, you're going, you're in, I don't know where, Tokyo or whatever. You're in some city in the back of a van being driven to like radio interviews and local TV performances and top of the pops and shows. And are you just sitting back there thinking, this is, I'm just really not comfortable here. You know, is your heart heavy? What, how does the, how does the discomfort manifest itself in those moments? Do you know what? I'd have to think back because it was many years ago. I think that um, uh, at the time, I seem to remember feeling very confused and okay. and split. 
about what I should and shouldn't do. I'm an Aries, so I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm very strong-willed, and I, and I often make decisions without really thinking them through. Or certainly, I used to. I've gotten better now. Mm-hmm. So I think I was just feeling that, uh, you know, there was the, there was the fact that Johnny hates jazz at the time in in Britain, because of course we were around for a shorter time in the states. We'd already been around in Britain. Sure. Several, several hits, but in Britain, I felt we were being marketed and perceived in a way that was not mm. accurate. You know, we were being marketed very much that. as a yeah, as a, <clears throat> as a teen, teenage pop band, and um, yeah. or rather a pop band appealing to, to teenagers. And that's not in and of itself wrong, but if that's all that's happening, then for someone like myself, that started to grate on me a lot. And I was that was another yeah. reason why I thought I just either this has to change radically. Or I'm or I'm out because I don't like being pigeonholed in this way. And yeah. there is an argument to say, well, you could have stayed with it and gravitated out of that. But it really bugged me. It was yeah. really something that okay. I didn't think was, you know, think about it, John. The second single in Britain actually was the single in the U.S. after I'd left was um, a song called "I Don't Want to Be a Hero," which is a very yeah. overt anti-war song. You know, if you think about bands that are marketed for teenagers now, we're talking about boy bands and girl bands and and this singer and that singer. In all honesty, in my humble opinion, I'm being a bit, it's a bit of a generalization, so excuse me if I don't mean to insult anyone, but I really think they have very little to say. Yeah. And there I was feeling I had a lot to say in an era when it was very common to make social, social statement through music. And I felt that, you know, I, I was being worked against in some ways by the way we were being presented, which was not the other guy's fault, by the way, in Johnny H. Jack. Sure. It was actually the record company's decision. So, you know, that kind of added okay. um, a sense that I just needed to jump ship. Yeah. So I've wondered about a few of those things. I mean, the for better or worse, the 80s were so, uh, so many of the artists in the 80s were so tied to an image. Johnny Hates Jazz certainly had one of those, you know, debonair suits, five o'clock shadow, shoulder pads, you know, you're a handsome guy in the front. I'm guessing a, a record label wants to sort of milk that for all it's worth. All three of you guys looked great. I'm not, it's not entirely, but you're the front man. And are you just uncomfortable wanting to kind of burn that image down as it's happening? Are you sitting there just feeling like, you know, I don't, a bird in a cage, like this is really not, I'm not comfortable with this. Even though the music is very poppy, you know, you were saying about, 
I don't want to be a hero. You're right. That's a very deceptively heavy song wrapped in a pop tune, you know, mm. which it sounds like you were sort of that way too. You're a deceptively heavy individual wrapped in a pop star sheen. And that whole image just didn't seem to sit well with you in any way. That's what I'm gathering from what you're saying anyway. Well, the irony was that the image, the suit thing, I used to dress like that every day, when no matter what I was doing. Everyone knew, before I was in Johnny HS, everyone knew me as being the guy who would show up in the suits and ties. And, huh. uh, you know, I, so that was not something that was by design. That's just what I looked like. So okay. the irony was, was that I didn't feel uncomfortable at all in that. What I felt uncomfortable with was that, and I think in some ways we were caught in a period of time where music was narrowing, you know, the late 80s. If mm-hmm. you think about the mid-80s and the rise, for example, of Tears for Fears, you know, Everybody Wants to Rule the World is also, uh, a, a, you know, incredibly memorable pop song, uh, you know, more memorable than I Don't Want to Be Here, I think, um, mm-hmm. and has a, uh, has a profound point. But it, it, there it is. It's a pop song, you know, yeah. it, and it's got a good groove, and the video was even the two of them cruising around in a convertible somewhere in the state. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's kind of contrary to what I think they were, they had in their hearts, actually. And so yeah. I think Tears for Fears were able to move beyond that because they were in an, a part of the decade where they could somehow make that move into a more serious realm and be understood and appreciated for that. I think by the time we came along, which was a few years later, 87 mm-hmm. and 88, it, you know, you were either some kind of, you know, depressed indie group, you know, with a certain haircut and, and very, you know, whatever kind of image. I don't really want to categorize sure. it. Or you were this kind of very polished pop group. And I think that we were we were kind of our own thing. I like to think of yeah. that as the case. And another great example, if I may, is Prefab Sprout. Oh, Prefab Sprout were a great band. And yeah. yet... They were never marketed in that way, although you could easily say Cars and Girls was just a breezy pop song. I mean, yeah. I'm being really, I don't mean to put it down, I love that song. That's just how sure. the, 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 the media would, I think, tend to categorize it. It's a great track. But they didn't go down that road, and, and we did go down that road, really mm. not by our own decision. And I don't, I have to say, in retrospect, I'm blabbing on here, John, but I have to say, in retrospect, no, this is wonderful. I don't, I've been dying to talk to you. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't really think we were with Virgin Records, and I don't look back and you know have any kind of bitterness about it. I mean, my goodness, they did what they thought they was the right thing to do at the time, and we did really well. So it would be silly of me to point any fingers, and it's all it's yeah. all in the past now. But but I do know that at the time I was I felt that I was being very misrepresented, and I had a problem with that. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a, did you have a sense then uh, or soon after how your departure affected your bandmates, Mike and Calvin? I mean, they're probably sitting there thinking, we've just hit the gravy train. We've got this song that's gigantic throughout the world. This is what I've always dreamed of. And now our front man wants to leave and oh, it I affects think, them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think, I, mean they were, not, I, think they were, I think they were devastated. In fact, I know they were okay. devastated. I think as we, we have to remember that at that time, Shattered Dreams, which was a, you know, a hit in the UK, Europe, um, Asia, South America as well, actually, a year before it became a hit in the States, 
you know, we were suddenly in this very uh, pressurized situation where we had actually only been signed to a singles deal mm. by Virgin Records. They didn't believe in us strong enough to give us an album deal. Not even one album. Mm. So Shattered Dreams became this this big hit and Virgin called us up and said, okay, where's the album? And we turned around and said, there is no album. You never signed yeah. us to an album. So mm. we had to suddenly get our skates on. Fortunately, I, I was the songwriter in the band, so I'd been writing already quite, you know, quite yeah. a few songs for the, for the band. But we had to get in the studio and record this stuff whilst we were flying all over the world promoting, mm. and it became very intense. And so, yes, there mm. were differences between the three of us, and, and they emerged mainly because of the pressure of that time. But, you know, I was, I was adamant. You know, the, the, the thing is, is yeah. that the first question that I was asked when it was clear I was going to leave was, are you going to contest ownership as the name of the group? And I said, mm. absolutely not. Absolutely right. not. I, I would not, I'm, you know, I'm not, I may, I may be wayward with my decisions you know, <laughs> at that yeah. time, but I wasn't going to rob anyone. You know, right. I wanted that, then they have to keep the name. They need to find someone else to do this with. And I wish them all the best and I'm going to do my own thing. That was my attitude. And I'm sure that, okay really didn't make it that much easier, but it did enable them to carry on. Sure, sure. And they did, just for anyone who might be listening that isn't aware, there was a second Johnny Hates Jazz album called Tall Stories, right? With Phil Thorne, I never know how to say his last name, Phil Thorne Allen. Thorne, yeah, Phil Thorne Allen, yeah. Baby, should have known that it was late Were you sleeping? You lie in their way Must have been crazy Should have never gone this far The fool I didn't know I was breaking so far Now I see Primarily in, on the production side, right? Except for playing a little bit with The Cure and stuff like that. He, I think, had produced yeah. or was working on Turn Back the Clock and then just, what, got recruited to replace you? My colleague in the band now, Mike Nacito, who was, you know, with me, one of the founding members. There's only mm-hmm. two of us now. There they used to be three. Calvin's no longer with the band. But Mike and Phil were childhood friends. So... You know, they'd known each other for years, both ended up in music, uh, you know, as musicians, but also on the engineering and production side. And they had started work with Calvin on a song called Me and My Foolish Heart, which Phil then withdrew from being involved in because he had other production commitments and didn't and felt that's where his path, he wanted his path to be. I have 
So yeah. I, I, I had known Mike and Calvin for years. Calvin and I had been in a band with one of the Sex Pistols, actually. So Hot Calvin Club, and I knew right? each other a long time. Hot Club, Club. Yeah. 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 And Mike and I had actually recorded on my own solo stuff. Mike had engineered my own solo stuff for okay. some years before. So we all knew each other. So, you know, I joined to sing me in my foolish heart, which is a weird one for me because I'd only ever sung my own songs. And Foolish Heart came out as a single on Rack Records. So this is the, the label we were signed to before Virgin. And it wasn't a hit, but, you know, we we liked the direction that it was taking. And so I said, okay, guys, I'm going to go away and write some songs for this concept called Johnny Hates Jazz. And I came back with a song called Shattered Dreams. And that's what, you know, really launched the path to getting signed to Virgin yeah. and going on from there. So anyway, the long and short of it is, that when I left, they went back to Phil, who had all you know had always been a an, an artist in his own right, not necessarily mm-hmm. acknowledged as such, but that's what he is. And he joined to do the the Tall Stores album. You know, the obviously you listen to that album and it's very Johnny Hates Jazz. Likewise, my mm-hmm. solo album at the time, Rain Dance, mm-hmm. is very Johnny Hates Jazz. It was really natural to all of us. So, um, yeah. and the irony is that I mean, I, I saw Phil recently. Phil and I have known each other for years, so there's no, you know, nothing weird about that as far Good. as I'm concerned. And uh, okay, you know, he's in fact me and Mike did some writing with Phil recently. So um, he's a good guy. Oh, you know, good. No, no he's problem. Another guy I'd like to talk to. He's been involved in so much music that I love. I have to track that guy down sometime. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Phil's a good guy. Good. So. When you left the band and you go out on your own and you start writing Rain Dance, by the way, your solo output is really confusing to figure out <laughs> because there's, I think there's three or four albums, but some of them have the same songs on them and different covers. And sometimes you're called Night Fox and sometimes you're not. And I, yeah. I've tried over the years to gather it all up and it's, it's really confusing to me. So Anyway, but I did notice that for the most part, after you left, there was kind of an image break. You could grow your hair long, and you know you're in like, you look like a almost like a cowboy or something. Like you want to, like you live in New Mexico or something like that. Well, I'm guessing many that years, was a many years later, yeah. too, right? Oh, was it? Many? Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah, well, I mean, okay. when when Rain Dance came out, which was 1990, I think that was the so that was my solo album mm. just after leaving okay. the band. I was still pretty much. You know, I still look like I was in a slightly more relaxed version of Johnny Hates Jazz. 
you know, the single from that was called Crown of Thorns. You were yesterday's hero, an ordinary man, a flesh and blood. Took the world on your shoulders, a hopeless crusade, an act of love. But it's a You know, in some ways, that perhaps encapsulates my state of mind and where I saw myself. Because I had a feeling that was, yeah, that was really a song about the, you know, questioning the existence of Jesus Christ, and if if he existed at all, if if he was in some way divine, or if he was just a human. And you know, uh-huh. it was interesting because it was Virgin Records who chose that as the first single. Yeah, they thought that was a really, really important thing for me to go out with. And huh. um, it, it wasn't supported at radio, which you kind of understand why. You know, I sure. was, you know that was my first solo single, and it was a heavy subject. And, and, and yeah. I'm very proud of that record. And, and Rain Dance, you know, as a result, the suggestion was made to me that maybe I should rework it. So I was introduced to a producer called Rupert Hine, who had produced oh, great guy. Jones, yeah. Fit, yeah, Tina Turner. Yeah, yep. tremendous producer. So we reworked some of the tracks from Rain Dance and added four other songs onto an album which became known as Fishing for Souls. A lifetime away from the here and the now A shadow is waiting, his body is bound Man whose existence was stolen away Who hopes against hope they'll release him someday Look at you powerful people Cowering in silence And it seems clear to me That album okay. did not get released. My relationship with Virgin was spiraling downwards, and it then got sold to EMI at a time when all of the media around the world was getting sold to larger yeah. and larger interests. And the independence of those entities ceased. And um, I remember doing some new recordings from EMI, which were 
much more forthright socially, and they didn't want to deal with me. They were now in the era of creating boy bands and everything being sure. sugar sweet and, you know, an emphasis on good-looking guys right. who kind of sung but didn't do a lot else. And, and that is what they wanted. That was their model. So someone yeah. like me who was getting even more left field, they didn't want to deal with. So Fishing for Souls eventually came out because I put it out because I gained ownership of it, of it again. But, mm. John, you know, leading to the point that you mentioned about the, the kind of the, the long-haired look, well, after Fishing for Souls, that's where I went. I, okay. I based myself, at, I based myself at, um, in a city called Bath so I could... Right. I could record, write and record at Real World Studios, which is Peter Gabriel's studios. Yeah. And I really immersed myself in folk and world music and wanted to combine that with pop and did a lot of writing, a lot of recording down there. And changed as an individual, especially had well. somewhat of a spiritual awakening down there. And that was reflected in how I looked. And Okay. And actually, the, the, the work that I did down there is going to come out on a previously oh. unreleased album. It will come out soon. Uh, There's a a lot of material there. So that will fill in a lot of the blanks. After that, I did move to the States. You know, I'd already lived in the States as a teenager. I was in L.A. for a while. But then I moved moved back to the States and ended up in Arizona, which is where your reference to New Mexico comes in. Yeah. That's right. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. And I absolutely, so I absolutely I loved it. I loved Arizona. Absolutely loved it. I bet you did. I bet it was, especially at that time in your life and your spiritual progression, I'm yeah. guessing that sort of, you know, relationship to the earth or whatever. What, I mean, define for us what this spiritual awakening looked like. You're talking about, you know, you've written and, and recorded a song called Crown of Thorns. It's about whether Jesus Christ is truly a divine being, but then you're also, it sounds like sort of connecting to the earth, mother nature, indigenous people, maybe even some like native American spiritualism is going on in there too. Define for us, if you can, if there even is one, what this spirituality, this spiritual progression looks like for you. As I said earlier, um, I had become environmentally much more aware and concerned as to what was happening to our planet. And really, the answer was, not the answer, excuse me, the question was why? Why is mm. this happening? What's driving yeah. humanity to wreak havoc on the only planet that we know of in the universe that can support us? And even if there was mm-hmm. one that we knew of, we couldn't even get there. So, yeah. Yeah. so it was a crazy situation. And I asked myself, well, there must be a reason for this, a psychological reason. And so... I started to want to find answers. I could not find them in organized religion. And I Had started you been religious to look at, up to that point? I'm sorry to well, interrupt, been but ra- you been, been a Christian or anything? I've been, been raised vaguely a Christian. I mean, Britain is okay. not a very religious country. Regard, I don't know what, how it's perceived, but actually it's a, it has a, one of the highest percentages of atheists in the world. Mm. And Partly that's because it was so influenced, for better and for worse, by Christianity hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And I think it just felt the need to, you know, move on and find something else. So for me, that was true of me. I was, you know, I was raised in a Christian environment, but but my family wasn't particularly Christian. My school perhaps was more so. You know, I wrote Crown of Thorns, going back a few years to Rain Dance again. I wrote Crown of Thorns 
because I'd read a book called The Last Temptation of Christ, right? Um, which a film of which was made of that by um, Scorsese. Uh, Martin Scorsese. Scorsese, yeah, exactly, with Willem Dafoe playing Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I was profoundly influenced by that book because really the question of the book was: Was Jesus actually a human? And if if yeah. he had been, what would have been? You know, what what decision would he have made had he not? died for the cause that he felt he needed to die for. It's a fascinating story and really made me question a lot of things. So I didn't find any references in organized religion to the earth, except for the idea of being, you know, good stewards of the earth. And I looked around and thought, well, that's not exactly what I'm seeing in a world that mm-hmm. is in very highly influenced by organized religion. So I looked to what I realized were the earth-honoring religions of the ancient past. And there aren't any left in Britain. There aren't any left in Europe because they were wiped out violently by the originally the, the, the Roman Empire and then what the Roman Empire became, which was the Holy Roman Empire, the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. And mm-hmm. I'm not, by the way, I'm not dissing individual Catholics here. I'm just saying sure. that these are the facts of history. I'm not inventing right. it. And, so I couldn't find answers here. You know, people had kind of reinvented druidry here, but it was a but mm. the lineage had been broken. It it had been broken. So they were having to pick up bits and pieces and try and put it together. And it wasn't really speaking to me. So the next direction I looked in was the Native American world. That was the one that spoke to me in a way that I think probably you know a thousand, two thousand years ago, the Celtic world would have spoken to me, but mm-hmm. we did not have those people anymore. So, mm-hmm. really, okay. I I went to the Native American world to to really ask the question: Why are we doing this to our planet? What is going on in our psychology mm-hmm. that would drive us to have our priorities so confused and so upside down? And that is where I found answers. And then you move oh. beyond that to other indigenous peoples whether it be the Mayans or to the uh, indigenous peoples of Australia and New Zealand, going back to ancient China. You know, the African traditions, you start to see that there are answers here because these people were highly sophisticated. They were highly civilized, far more so than we give them credit for. And if historians would just bother asking them about their perspective on history and what is happening to our world now, they find that, uh, that I think they'd be illuminated very quickly because some of these mm-hmm. people, not all of them, but a number of these people are highly educated, highly intelligent, and carry histories with them that we do not have access to. They've yeah. had to protect for fear of them being destroyed by, uh, by the people who wanted to move them out of the way, sweep them under yeah. the carpet. Right. So, right. sorry, John, that's my long-winded <laughs> way no, of that's, saying uh, that's good. That, that's that's the that's the route I took, and um, and uh, it, it still is a big part of my life. I can tell. So you mentioned finding some answers. What kind of answers did you find? I mean, uh, anything specific or unique? I don't other know than if we've got to I take mean, care I, of each other. In the space of an of, a, of an interview of this nature, oh, it's not possible to to really get into it to that degree, yeah. but. Okay. There's no, there is no doubt that, yeah. in my opinion, you know, we have to distinguish between how organized religion is used and mm. and how people on an individual basis practice it. So I'm not talking about individuals here. People, if if they choose to be 
affiliated with one of the organized religions, then that is their choice. And they and they of course they vary to various degrees. You know, I mean you can't sure. exactly say that Buddhism is similar to Islam. But they have their commonality as well. The one thing let me just say this the one thing that the indigenous world used to honor and to an extent still honors, but to an extent it doesn't, because it is not what it used to be. It's it's also had its its lineage damaged. They honoured the notion of balance between mm. female and male, and and we're not just talking about women and men, human women and men. They saw the the, the feminine and the masculine present in in all creation, in everything that exists. You know, that's a, yeah. one of the terms that's used now is, is animism, yeah. which has, doesn't have any, really anything to do with the word animal. It has something to do with the word animate, that they saw yeah. everything in as animated. That is everything with life. And that doesn't mean that they, you know, started, you know, worshipping a stone superstitiously. Mm-hmm. They understood that the molecules within that stone actually literally do move. They vibrate as everything does mm-hmm. in the universe. It's a measure of a vibration. So they, there was a sophistication there as to why they, we call them animists and they saw themselves as animists. So the, the, the prime thing was that we're in a world that has not acknowledged the importance of the feminine for maybe 2,000 years. Mm. And this is yeah. why we are yeah. in the situation we're in now. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, you get women back in power and we we don't see the world changing particularly radically. But we have to, we, this is not just about a few women in power in, in, in corporate boardrooms. This is about a complete change in our understanding of mm. how we see ourselves and, and how the fact is, is that the, the female and women as a reflection of that are are still incredibly denigrated. Yeah. By our society. True. And spiritually, think about it. You know, again, you look at the heads of the organ, the major organized religions. I don't see a woman there. No, I haven't seen no, a woman no. there for hundreds of years. So right. in and of itself, that should say something to us. So I think that is actually the beginning because, of course, they refer to the earth as what? They refer to the earth as Mother Earth. And so there is a link there between you know, how we treat the planet that gives us life and how we treat the humans that give us life. There you go. That's, mm. that's Sorry, John. That's, okay. that's, it sounds like the, uh, I'm really, I'm giving kind of a general answer. I mean, we could go on till the cows come home uh, about sure. that. But, but, yeah. but that, that's my, no, that's my kind of only shot. I've been so, I mean, I've, from an outsider looking in, I've sensed this from you watching your progression off and on over 30 years. And so I was very curious to find out how you would, what solutions you'd come to and how you would define your progress. So I'm really, it's fascinating. This, this just answers a long standing question I've had. Okay. So let's talk more about music. Now I got to, one of the things I always like to ask about are some of the people that the guests that I talk to have collaborated with. And I believe on your rain dance album, You've got Nathan East playing bass. You've got John J.R. Robinson playing drums. Those are two of the greatest session musicians in the history of music. And then Dave Gregory of XTC is in there somewhere. How does this happen? Who who went in and decided, Clark, no offense, Clark, you're a great songwriter and a great everything, but 
you're not like the biggest name in the world, not even in 1990, you know? So who goes in and decides we're going to put some of the greatest musicians of all time on Clark Datchler's solo album? Well, there's two answers to that. One is that it obviously had to be down to the songs. You know, those songs had yeah. to mean something. I mean, it, it, weirdly, Rain Dance was going to be produced by Niall Rogers. I went to see Niall in New York Whoa, and played him, really? played him the demos. Yeah, Niall was just totally up for it because he loved the songs but oh. his timing was that it meant i would have had to have waited i think he said you know like nine months and had i had oh. any brains i would have said why don't you wait nine <laughs> months and just well, no rogers no but that but luckily for me i was introduced to a an engineer and producer called umberto katika who was you know an engineer for the engineer for david foster and uh, engineered the Chicago stuff. He did a lot, some of the Michael Jackson stuff, okay. and wanted to, you know, wanted to do some production. And so Umberto and I worked together on Rain Dance. And through him, I was introduced to some of the great session players of the day uh. in the states. And obviously in the UK, it was a different matter because I had my my connections here. But it was also, you know, I I was a I grew up with very eclectic tastes, and one of my tastes yeah. was soul music. I was a soul boy. Mm. So mm. I'd listen to records with, you know, John Robinson and, and Nathan on it for, for donkey's years. So it was Paulino yeah. da Costa. You know, I couldn't wait to, <laughs> to be yeah. able to work with those guys. And it was a real, sure. it, I, I know it sounds like a cliche, but it, I, it was a real honor to be able to do that. Oh, I can imagine. Mm. I can imagine. Wow. Okay. So one of the things we talk about on here is kind of the business side of things. Shattered Dreams, while being a huge hit and still gets played today, I'm curious if that was a, is that a, and you can answer this or not, I'm trying to be very sensitive, is that a big enough hit that you could live off Shattered Dreams royalties for the rest of your life? Uh, that's a really good question. It depends on how I choose to live. <laughs> okay, okay, that's a good answer, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, yes, probably, probably. Okay. But I, uh, the 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 flaw in my great plan of of mm -hmm. tr even trying to do that hypothetically is that I do travel quite a lot, and and I okay. I travel for various reasons, uh, not really to go on holiday. I just I go to different places, I go to different lands, I get very inspired by being there, and I do some writing, and so. You know, that's kind of part of how I like to live my life. And I think that although Shattered Dreams has done phenomenally well and continues to, I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's heading, I think, I think it's not that far away from 4 million plays on U.S. <laughs> radio now. Nice. It, yeah, it is. It's, a, it's amazing. Yeah. You know, on the other hand, you've got to say to yourself, well, what's the state of the music industry now? Well, mm -hmm. as Quincy Jones said recently, what music industry? Right. The fact is, is that if you need to have your own funds available to put into your own releases, I mean, the last Johnny Hates Jazz album, which was not formally released in the U.S., it was really only formally released in the U.K. and Germany, uh, was an album called Magnetize.
very good. By you know, way. Well, I love it. Thank you, thank you. Well, we sure. we put you know, fortunately, we had um, a very wonderful person help us with that album in terms of investment, but we put our own money into it as well. So, and it was okay. an expensive album to make. So, you have to kind of have reserves to be yeah. able to going in the music industry because it's not as it was. You know, the the right. The, la- the labels are few and far between. There's probably, you know, three or four now. Sure. And yeah, sure, there's smaller labels, but they all have a similar ethos. So there you go. It, yeah, that's my, I mean, my long-winded answer no, then. No, I understand. I mean, there's really no business now. I mean, no one, no one's going to, well, maybe, but I highly doubt anyone who has a Shattered Dreams type hit today could live the same way you live, good or bad, for the next 30 years afterwards. It's just not built into the infrastructure anymore. But it was then. So when, when you, that's why I'm asking is because when you sort of disappear there, not disappear, but when you change directions in the early 90s, you say you go to Bath and you sort of set up shop there. I, you're not touring. You're not releasing music. You're not, doing, you're not selling T-shirts. You're not doing the things that most artists do to kind of pay their bills in those moments, unless you're on some kind of a salary or something at Bath for doing production work. You have to be living off royalties, primarily from Shattered Dreams all those years, right? Well, yes and no, but remember that there were four other hit singles uh, in the rest of the world. So another huge record, in fact, bigger in some countries than Shattered Dreams was a song called Turn Back the Clock. Thank you. And, and when, you know, unfortunately, I didn't stick around with the band long enough for us to release that in the States. So th- there, was a, there was a body of work there. And also okay. I was, I, yeah. I did perform live. I mean, actually, that's when I started performing under the name of Night Fox. Oh, um, okay. I, I, it was here and there. It was, you know, very unusual situations, but I did do some live stuff. So, okay. you know, okay. that was part of it as well. I love that album and all your stuff. I come at this from a U.S. perspective. Of we course, primarily yeah. over here, you know, only know Shattered Dreams, but all those other yeah. songs were so good, too. So there's something I've been, always been curious about. 1987 was really the one and only really magical year for that sophistipop sound that Johnny Hates Jazz was so much a part of. I recently put out an episode of the podcast with, I never know how to pronounce his last name, so I'll just say Ben, the lead singer of Curiosity Killed the Cat, another band that was of a similar vibe that was out that same year. Swing Out mm-hmm. Sister is around at that time. Breeze, Danny Wilson, Kane Gang, Hip Sway. All these bands coming out of the UK with that quote-unquote blue-eyed soul sound, sophistipop sound. 
what is happening in the UK that is inspiring that particular sound at that time? And unfortunately, most of those bands, except maybe Swing Out Sister, didn't last very long either. You know, when the when the sound and the the change, the, the attitudes and the culture changes, maybe two years later, all those none of those bands really evolved with it very well. You know, well, what, one of, one of the reasons is that they all split up. I mean, it wasn't it, it, this was really common back then, and and one of the reasons for that, I think, was that as you know, John, British pop music in the 1980s, as it was in the 60s was pretty dominant. I mean, the, the U.S. Yeah. absolutely was as well, and Canada, Australia, New Zealand had their great artists too, but by and large, Britain, you know, was mm-hmm. was was pretty happening then. So a lot of people were making a lot of money, and mm-hmm. that created an awful lot of pressure as well, an awful lot of pressure to succeed and compete. Mm-hmm. So I think it created a competitive environment. I mean, think back, we all remember the, if any of us who are old enough to remember the 80s, it was an incredibly competitive time in general. Mm-hmm. It was the economic outlook of the time. You know, Reaganism, Thatcherism was competition. Mm-hmm. And you could say, of course, it still is. But I think that it, it was very pointed back then. So bands mm-hmm. imploded very often as a result of that massive pressure. I mean, now... Mm-hmm. It, it's. I do think it's a little bit different. It, you know, it, it. You have to kind of be self-motivated because you're really not going to get right. a lot of help from the industry, and you're probably not yeah. going to make an awful lot of money. So, there was that. What was happening at the time? I think it was really a natural evolution, because really, yeah, because I, I can't really. I mean, I remember some of those bands, and and we all had our slight differences. Johnny Hates Jazz was was actually quite electronic. We were yeah, probably a little true. more electronic than the others. And so, uh, you know, we had come out of the, you know, new romantic era and we'd all okay. been involved in the electronic, the rise of electronic music. And and at the same time, I mean, Mike Masita, my colleague, had, you know, he'd engineered the uh, Thompson Twins. Um, mm-hmm. he'd, en- he'd done a lot of work for all kinds of people. And likewise, I'd been involved with, one of the guys from Visage, who the Visage did a mm-hmm. record to Fade to Grey, yeah. Of course. Rusty, Rusty Egan signed me, yeah. He signed me, so I was doing electronic music in the early 80s. Okay. And Calvin also was uh, drumming with Kim Wilde. So, oh, sure. you know, we had, we had this kind of background, but at the same time, we were kids, we were children of the 70s. Any yeah. artists were children of the 70s, so we were listening to 
Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers. And sure, we listened to the Moody Blues and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, but interestingly, Steely Dan were a big influence. So we kind of were this weird collision between British electronic music and this kind of Steely Dan influence. Yeah. Okay. And I think that was true of other bands as well. Hence, you got Prefab Sprite. You had Danny Wilson. Yeah. You know, there was this kind of the sophistication actually came from, you know, West Coast America. That makes sense. Yeah, there was just a, <clears throat> there was kind of an explosion of that sound. A lot of horns. Not that you guys incorporated as much horns as maybe, you know, a Simply Red or a Swing Out Sister did. But there was, uh, there was just an explosion of that kind of sound right then that's never really been duplicated. And I've always wondered... You know, what was in the water in the UK specifically? You know, it's, they're all UK bands. Why all that was happening right then and there? Always wondered. It's very tra- John, if I can just quickly comment on that, it's also very traditional that British bands, you know, the Beatles were the prime example of going to the States, asked who their influences were. Yeah. And their influences were basically, you know, African American musicians of, right. yeah, of, the, very of true. the day, of the 50s, actually. So, we were, you know, a lot of us, I remember talking to um, uh, the guys from Heaven 17 recently, they were mm-hmm. soul boys too. So we were yeah. listening to Earth, Wind & Fire. We were listening to the Commodores. Oh, we were yeah. listening to the Ohio yeah. players. And so the whole horn section thing mm-hmm. was from there. Okay. It was a, a U.S. influence, yeah. Yeah, huh. Okay. Uh, did you have cancer recently, by the way? In 2013, yeah, I did, yeah. Just I think very, I read this recently. Just as Magnetized comes out, and you're pro, you're kind of back on the horse again, you get cancer. Correct? I know. Yeah, it's radical. The uh, Magnetized the single was just was the, the most played record at one point in Britain uh, on British nice. radio, and it was getting absolutely played to death in in Germany as well. You know, we were being asked for our second single, and I was out actually for a walk in London with my kids and I collapsed and was rushed to hospital and diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer that would not respond to chemotherapy. It had to be a case of I had an operation. If they caught it at its early stages, I'd be fine. If it was at its late stages, it was over for me. And I really think this is an interesting point because I said about the need for younger artists of today, younger bands to be self-motivated you know we we self-released magnetized and i and i was doing a lot of the work a lot of the record label work and it just became very very stressful and i think it was stress that brought it on yeah so um i was very fortunate that when i had the operation it was at a very early stage they could remove the tumor and 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 i'm fine now so yeah but it brought everything to a halt i mean really we lost so much momentum because i had to i had months of recovery and so you know, so pretty. Yeah, was on the back burner. Yeah. Oh. Now, so what's the state? What? Where do you? Where you have so many different things. Where are you focusing your attention today? Do you go out and play as Johnny hates jazz? Do you do solo stuff? Are you working on new music for one of those things or both? What What are you What are you doing right now? Well, the most recent thing I've done is that I've co-written the new Mike and the Mechanics album with Mike Rutherford. Really? Um, Yeah. Wow. I don't want to live without living. I don't want to wear a disguise. 
I've spent a couple of years with Mike doing that actually, and with the two the two new singers of Mike and the Mechanics to, that replaced Paul Young and Paul Carrick, a guy called Andrew Roachford and um, Tim oh. Howard. Yeah, Roachford, Andrew Roachford, like uh, Cuddly yeah. Toy Roachford. Yeah, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. He's the lead singer of Mike and the Mechanics now. He is. He is. He's wow. And, oh yeah. wow, that's great. It is great, and and they've got a new album called Let Me Fly, and I've co-written most of the songs on an album with them, and uh, <clears throat> so that was a big part of my life. Then I was involved with, with the creation of an environmental awards ceremony in Germany called Green Tech Awards. That actually happened in 2008 with the release of a, a solo album of mine called uh, Tomorrow, which was a, an environmentally oriented yeah. album. I was born in the strangest time I had no roots that I could find People living in rows and lines Studying and digging See, where, oh, where's the forgotten tree? The many branches of humanity Whose roots come down to you and me Why is it hidden? So I search the then I search the sky Beyond the shores and borderlines From the Andes up to the northern Rockies I will not stop till I find me the mother tree well, My tongues were tied and her hands were bound People robbed of common ground and um, thank you thanks very much Sean and um, so I've kept going with Green Tech Awards it's now one of the biggest environmental events on the planet it's a, it's a huge thing We're, and so that brings me to Johnny H. Jazz we've performed together me and Mike have performed together since 2010 obviously okay. we worked in, on and released Magnetized 2013 by the time I had recovered we just decided you know what let's focus on live stuff I'll write some new songs, and we'll head towards a new album, and that's what we are going to do now. Um, oh, good. In, yeah, so we're in the studio writing and recording. Interestingly, though, we were approached by someone in Hong Kong to launch Johnny Hates Jazz in, in mainland China. So we've remixed the, the, the track, Magnetized. We've, we've shot a new video for it, a really cool video, actually. And next month, Johnny Hates Jazz is introduced to the people of China, and we'll see what happens. But um, that's wow. an interesting one. Yeah. Wow. It just it just has never completely gone away, has it? It's uh, No. You can always kind of get back into it, 
Wow. Well, you know, nothing's crazy. ever really old anymore because everything's yeah. available on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. Right. Everything, <laughs> everything is released. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, that is actually one of the magical things about the time, that you can have something that was recorded. We've all heard the story, stories of records that were recorded years ago that suddenly become hits, unbeknownst yeah. to the artist who made them. Right. And who knows what's going to happen with Magnetize now. We'll see. Wow, that's great. When you guys go out and play, do you play on, like, the nostalgia sh- circuit? Do you play in those kind of retro-glide all-day festivals, or are you doing your own, you know, standalone shows? We do both, but I mean the the retrospective festivals are you know they're okay. I'm not uh-huh. I'm you know we we do we do certain ones and not others. You know they're 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 great fun in in their own way. They're they're sure. enormous fun. But we are doing a few this year, but you know with our own band and in amongst our own shows as well. And we're doing some. Okay. In fact, we 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 tend to do we're doing more non eighties festivals now. And I think that's really, a, uh, you know, it's a way of us continuing to see ourselves as a band, yeah. as a present, which, you know, of course, we our roots are in the 80s, and that's how people know sure. us, but we we've, we've still feel we've got a lot to do. I wondered about that, and I go to a lot of those nostalgia shows. I love them, but cool. you seem to me like somebody who almost burned down nostalgia as it was happening, you know? You're in the moment thinking, I don't feel comfortable in, with this image and this sound and this vibe in the 80s right now. I got to run away. I got to get out of here. So mm. um, as much as I would give anything to see a Johnny Hates jazz show on its own or in a nostalgia show, it's, it, doesn't, it seems almost counter to what I perceive your relation to nostalgia might be. I, it doesn't surprise me that you say that you're very focused on new music and kind of breaking away and standing alone as your own because that seems to be who you are as an artist. Not again, that is not a knock in any way against anyone who goes <laughs> to the nostalgia shows because I love those shows. And if it weren't for those, I wouldn't see the bands that I love, like ABC or Naked Eyes or Cutting Crew, all these bands that I missed the first time around. But anyway, well, this is good. I'm glad that you. Uh, there's still vibrancy in within you and within your the band and everything because it sounds like you want to continue to grow and build this thing from where it is, right? Yeah, very much so. And I have to say that you know if you do ever see Johnny H. Jazz live, I mean we perform all all the hits and we you know we, there's no I have no attitude. About, I'm very grateful Good. for those records having existed and being uh, being uh, embraced the way they were. And like I said, the nostalgia shows. They have their magic. They really sure. do. Oh, I'm just yeah, saying that do. I don't I don't want to root myself in that. That's all. It should yeah. be part of what you do, but not all of what you do. Got it. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, so in, just in clo- you got to tell me some of your best stories. You and I, we've been corresponding a little bit on Facebook lately because you post every now and then one of your favorite songs from the 80s. And they yeah. are always one of my favorite songs from the 80s as well. You've thrown in some... Neil Finn, who's an all-time favorite, some Talk Talk, even some Brian Adams. I'm, yep. I, I look forward to every post because it's right in my wheelhouse. Were you oh, cool. ever? Yeah. And so did you? You know, have you met any of these people? Did you ever meet Mark Hollis of Talk Talk? Do you have any Talk Talk interaction stories? 
No, I don't. I tried to yeah. reach Tim Free Screen, the, their producer, recently, yeah. and it, it and it, it transpired that he he sounds like he's actually retired from music because it's got mm-hmm. tough. It's the music world yeah. is not what it was. Sad to say. Um, yeah. I, I no, I didn't. I didn't meet Mark Hollis. <sighs> Who can I tell you? Well, I think. I mean, the weird thing is, is that one of the people that I met on the road, like I instantly got on with back in the eighties, was Mike Rutherford. Yeah. And little did I know that, that you know, thirty years later, I was going to be writing yeah. a Mike and the Mechanics album with him. So, I guess though that, you know, I've met a lot of these people actually at the nostalgia shows, at the at the, at the eighties yeah. shows, it, it, you know, after the fact, because back then. You might have heard Martin Fry say this as well. Everyone was so hyper competitive. They, they were kind of nice to each other, but they really everyone had to get to number one. You know, it was a yeah. chart was a massive thing then. It's it's practically irrelevant now. It was massive right. back then. So, yeah. so you there was a lot of one upmanship going on. You know, yes, of course you bumped into okay. people. My fa- my favorite moment though probably was I was I was in Holland at a TV station and I was. Resting on the couch in there, uh, it was you know manic promotional schedule. I was resting on the couch in the cafeteria, which was completely empty, and filming was going on of a pop show uh, that was being hosted by my then wife at the time. So it was a Dutch pop show, and I wasn't really aware of who was on. I was just kind of resting and, and waiting for her. So I suddenly feel a tap on my shoulder, and I look up from the couch, and George Harrison's looking down at me. No way. <laughs> and I'm half asleep, and he says, hey, that Shattered Dreams record of yours, I like that. That's great. And <laughs> oh, wow. And I look up at him, and I say to him, um, I like your music as well, George. <laughs> Don't really know what on earth to say. This sure. is the Beatles, you know. So I, I just, I was speechless. I was speechless, and that was really one of those moments. I just thought, well, you know what? I told Mike and Calvin, afterwards and they were beside themselves you know that was yeah. you couldn't get a, a a greater compliment than that so I, that was probably my most memorable meeting wow of the time. right on that is great <laughs> oh wow well good deal this was uh clark i've been i've been so curious about you for so long wanting to hear your story and i'm so grateful that you talked to me i've been a fan i've been fascinated I've wanted to know these answers for so long, so I'm so grateful you took the time to talk to me. It's very surreal, but it means a lot. Well, John, thank you for the very intelligent questions as well. I really appreciate that. And thanks for bearing with me, because I gave you some long-winded answers there. So thank That's you. okay. This was your right. platform. I'm glad that you did it. There you have it, Clark Datchler. I really enjoyed that. I hope you did, too. And if nothing else, I hope you felt some sweet nostalgia hearing Shattered Dreams again. And some of those other tracks in there. It's been a while, right? Such great stuff. His solo career is really good, too. If you were unaware of that or you haven't heard his solo material, check it out. I wanted to close this out with my favorite solo song of his. It's called Widow. So I hope you like it. And I hope you go check out more of his stuff. Pick up Magnetized while you're at it. It's really good. Or Mike and the Mechanics. I mean, if you're an American like me, you probably didn't even know they were still a thing. But they're still out there. Just put out a new album. Check that out, too. Really good stuff. Thank you, Clark, for doing that with me. All right. Here's the business. 
If this is your first time joining us, this is what we do here at The Hustle. We try to answer the question, what is the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of brief rock stardom? And we've been doing this now for two years. So go into our archive and see if there's other guests in there that seem interesting to you. And check it out. These are the stories that we try to tell. If you like it, or you've been listening to us for a little while here, if you haven't done it already, please go in and write us a quick review. We need that, and we appreciate it. You can subscribe on iTunes or whatever your podcatcher is. You can find us on Facebook and like our page, and you can send me a message on there if you want. You can also email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at The Hustle Pod. If there's an artist out there that you love and you miss and you haven't heard from for a while, drop me a line and we'll see if we can track them down. Huge thanks, as always, to my right-hand man, Yan the Man Makevich, for putting everything together. He's so good at it. We will see you all next Tuesday. Bye, everybody.